Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. It's set to be an explosive week in Parliament as the EU withdrawal bill returns to the Commons. In a week following a threat to resign from Brexit Secretary David Davis and a come and sack me plea from Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, a defeat here could have meant Theresa May moving out of number 10 by Saturday. But does it look likely to happen? The Prime Minister's international focus doesn't look much rosier. Meeting of the G7 ended in acrimony, with Trump leaving early, attacking allies via Twitter and prompting further worries on the future of trade. I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope. I'll be discussing that with Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Director Richard Angel and Bridget Phillipson, MP for Horton and Sunderland South. Before we begin talking about this week's parliamentary debates on the EU withdrawal bill, let's take a quick look at trade. Donald Trump appears to be trying to stoke a trade war with closest neighbour Canada, applying tariffs on steel and aluminium and attacking Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The June issue of Progress magazine, which landed with members on Thursday, also looks at the possibilities for post-Brexit trade. And we held an in-conversation event with Bridget Phillipson and former Trade Commissioner Peter Mandelson last week. Let's just hear a short clip from that. And there was coverage at the weekend about the likely impact of, well, various kind of doomsday scenarios around a no-deal Brexit. Do you think there is a genuine prospect of that happening? Or will there be a deal come what may? No, I don't think for one moment Parliament would allow that to happen. Uh, The consequences would be catastrophic uh, for the country, uh, for our trade, for people's jobs, our living standards. uh, And there is certainly not a majority in Parliament uh, for that. Bridget, do you share Peter Mandelson's bullishness that uh, a no-deal exit cannot happen? I think I've pretty much given up on making any form of political <laughs> prediction after the last couple of years. Yeah. However, you know, I think that if you look at the consequences, you know, the doomsday scenario that, you know, it was talked about that I mentioned in that uh, event, it just seems inconceivable that that could happen. But even when you look at the options, which I know we'll come on to, for a post-Brexit relationship, the consequences of those different options are pretty catastrophic for regions like the Northeast and other parts of the country that depend upon exports. So even the kind of best worst case is still a pretty difficult one, which is why I'm so concerned about, you know, the discussions that we'll be having next, this week in Parliament. I was doing some radio on Monday morning and they had a call in from uh, Nigel Lawson, the former Tory Chancellor, and he was talking up the possibility of a no-trade exit. He was saying that it would be a good thing and it would be good just to put the EU in a, in their place, which I thought was utterly terrifying. While he applies for his French citizenship so he can opt out <laughs> of any of the consequences of Brexit personally while leaving working people around the country to feel them acutely. Well, quite. And, uh, do you, but do you think this 
do either of you get the impression that the government really knows what it wants from a trade perspective? Are they any closer to squaring the circle where essentially they say we get all of the good things from a new trade deal without any of the bad things? No. And when you look at um, the trade deals they apparently want to strike with third party countries, it's even less clear. So we visited uh, Washington DC as part of a visit with the Public Accounts Committee back Mm. in February and met with um, a number of key figures across different kind of government and civil society. And the message that we got on trade and on the trade deal we apparently want to strike with the US is go back home and tell your guys what it is that they want. You know, they need to come Mm. and tell us what they want from a trade deal because we're none the wiser. And until we know that, we're not really going to be in a position to negotiate a decent trade deal. To be honest, even if a a decent trade deal were to happen, the issue of proximity, which Peter Mandelson talked about in that Mm. event, is so important. So we make nearly a million cars um, at Nissan and Sunderland every year, 80% of which are exported into the European markets. We're not suddenly going to be able to overcome the barrier of geography and (laughs) ship all of those cars across the Atlantic. And I keep thinking when Liam Fox comes back from Argentina or Indonesia with, I'm going to get a trade deal with these people, it's like, why? Have you brought it closer? Because unless you've changed some of the geography, some of the thing that aids trade is not going to change uh, very quickly. It's so frustrating to see that. And I don't know if you saw the Open Britain report that they did uh, last week and we had a synopsis of it in Progress magazine. You know, the countries which we're up against in these trade deals, they all have a book. They have a book on every other country in the world, what markets they would want access to in their domestic uh, system and what they want from that trade deal. We've barely even got a colouring book with Liam Fox, you know, knowing where all the countries are, let alone actually get into a point where it's like, right, in this place, we would want this. And the problem for us is that you've got three problems. America want access to the NHS. And like, we weren't prepared to give it when we were negotiating as part of a big trade block. How are we going to stop that as part of a little one? I'm not sure, but I'm damn sure the British public don't want it. Secondly, do you have to lower standards to get more access in, a, in, in established markets? Because they already have that set of rules in place. But the Thirdly, you then have to uh, allow more visas to have them in other or particularly emerging markets. And then you've got all kinds of problems. I mean, one of the things that you and Peter explored at the event that I thought was really interesting is, what if we gave more visas to Australia, uh, but not to India? That would indicate a view of foreign policy, a view of their cultural heritage, that would have huge consequences here. I think what's really difficult is that we've allowed this narrative to develop that somehow we can't strike tra- strike trade deals as part of, you know, as being part of a member of the European Union. And actually, as part of that block, we've got a far bigger voice when it comes to some of those issues around steel as well. I would yeah. want us to be part of a much bigger union making that case around uh, the avoidance of tariffs and so on. And it'll be more difficult um, without that kind of influence. But yeah, I thought Peter was absolutely right to draw the obvious shortcomings um, in that. And when you look at whether it's um, the Japanese, um, Indians, uh, the Australians, you name it, they will want access to the British labour market. And I don't know how that can be reconciled um, with some of the issues that we've been discussing around immigration because, you know, we need skilled people to come and work in our country. And of course, we have to find a way of managing that to bring the widest possible public consent but we're not suddenly going to become a closed border economy outside of the European Union. And I think we need a degree of honesty about that. I, th- I think that's true. And one of the things that the kind of pretty Patels and Liam Foxes were berating the EU for in the referendum was that it didn't have a trade deal with India. Well, one of the things that Open Britain exposed is that that was because Britain was saying no, because it wasn't prepared to give the visas for either higher education or our labour market that India 
understandably wanted. And a lot of Tory MPs are really concerned about the impact on the agricultural sector of a trade deal with the US and other countries. They often represent rural communities with high standards around animal welfare that want to protect their products. And another downside of the trade deal with the US when we're having to have these negotiations, which involve a bit of give and take, is will we have to export import lower quality American products, um, which will have a massive impact on the British agricultural sector. So, you know, it's all, none of this is easily to resolve and it certainly can't be resolved before departure day. I want to touch on the Trump-Trudeau standoff that we've seen over the past few days, because some of the things that uh, a lot of Brexiteers tell us about the trade that we'll be able to strike up is, on the one hand, getting a great deal with America as such a close ally, or being able to replicate the Canada-European trade uh, alliance, CETA, which people say is such a great deal. And actually, what seems to be, to me, the, the big thing from this weekend is that Trump has no interest in having favourable trade deals with anyone, it seems, and that actually this kind of tariff war that they're now uh, having means that Canada will be even more reliant on that trade deal with Europe, which we won't be in. Is, is that a kind of, is that roughly right? Even if we were to strike an advantageous trade deal with the US, which of course none of us are against, you know, I want to see the you know, the breaking down of barriers in, in trade and the job creation that comes in that country. But even if that were to happen, it's not going to replace what we're potentially going to be losing by leaving the European mm. Union under a hard Tory Brexit. So again, I think, you know, we shouldn't make this mutually exclusive. It shouldn't be we can't strike a trade deal and, you know, um, and that somehow being out of Europe has all these benefits but no potential downsides because, you know, there are significant problems coming down the track. We need to take a quick break there, but Alison McGovern will be joining us next as we'll be looking at this week's parliamentary votes in a bit more detail. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. My name is Jasmine Beckett and I'm standing for the Labour Party's National Executive Committee. Along with my fellow centre-left candidates for the NEC, we are campaigning for Labour Party members to have a say on Brexit at Labour Party conference. All members want a say on the biggest issue facing our country at the moment. You can sign up to the campaign now at laboursay.eu. So it's a big week in the House of Commons with the EU withdrawal bill coming back to MPs after going through the Lords. Alison, why why is it such a big deal this week? Okay, so the... House of Lords amended the uh, EU withdrawal bill to reflect, I think, their concern that the government has got it wrong. And that wasn't just people on the Labour side of things. You know, in the House of Lords, you have Labour's peers, the Conservative peers, Liberal Democrats, but also quite a large group of crossbenchers. That represents, you know, to sort of greaten the good at the academics, 
or um, former permanent secretaries, you know, they form the, the majority of those crossbench peers um, who were a big kind of political group by themselves, albeit they're apolitical. And the Labour, Lib Dem and crossbenchers essentially formed the opposition to the EU withdrawal bill in different numbers. And they've put some amendments to the bill, some of which I think the government will accept in order to reduce the controversy to get the bill through. But and that's a very normal thing, isn't it, Lords adding amendments onto bills when it comes to them? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's their one job. I mean, it's, like, <laughs> it's what they do. So, and quite often the government will just give in. And it, and actually, like if you're an organisation out there on any normal bill, if you're an organisation out there, and the, you've got a very specific narrow issue, and the way that the Commons functions, like there just wasn't time for your issue, there's more likely for you to get your amendment in in the Lords, by which time you might have spoken to the government and that you know they're going to accept it, the Lords will whack it in, that's fine. It's how the situation works. But in this case, the Lords amendments, the government is not going to give in to all of them. And I would mention um, three specifically that the government won't give in to. There's, there's an amendment on making sure that we get a full meaningful vote once we know what the deal with the European Union is, that essentially Parliament decides, not the government decides. And the government is still equivocating on that. It, it essentially puts power in the hands of Parliament. If take back control was to mean anything, surely it's that. So we will fight them really hard on that. There is um, another amendment on Northern Ireland and safeguards around Northern Ireland, which is you know very important. The government just don't want to nail their colours to the mast there. It involves um, all of these issues about uh, the customs union and the potential for trade deals and the government want to keep their options open. And the last amendment that I think will be controversial is Amendment 51, which is about setting the EEA, the European Economic Area, as our backstop position. And a group of Labour peers working with crossbenchers, Liberal Democrats and some Tories passed this amendment that basically sets the kind of economic path for the deal. It would mean that the government was seeking to negotiate something like the European Economic Area, membership of the single market, which regular listeners of this podcast will know that we've <laughs> talked about before and why I think the single market is absolutely um, necessary. At the moment, it looks like the Labour whip is going to be to abstain on that amendment. So whilst there is a very large group of Labour MPs who will vote for it because they believe in single market principles for our economy, it looks it looks like we'll abstain on 51. And Keir Starmer has tabled a separate amendment to the amendment, which uses language that's essentially just looser. It's designed to kind of take account of the disagreement that still exists within the Labour Party on issues of free movement and the Brexit referendum. And personally speaking, I think we've got to decide, we've got to say, this is the kind of model for our economy that we believe in. Even if we must Brexit, we're still going to stay part of the European family of trading nations. And this is how we'll do it. And I think that's where the Labour Party should be. It will be a bit of a controversial issue uh, on Wednesday when it comes up. But the votes on getting a meaningful vote, I think, will be at least as big. So that is broadly where we are. I think in the past, we, we've heard lots of stories about the kind of tactics that whips use to make sure that you uh, you follow the line. When, when They don't really use them on me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know if they... Do they, do they not care? <laughs> Permanent rebel, Alison McGovern. Oh, but, that's so unfair. <laughs> well, as well, I've, I've been there in the whip's office, and you, you were yeah, in the whip's yeah, office, yeah, weren't yeah, you? We, so you, Weren't we in the whip's office at the same time? 
I can't remember now. You yeah, mean I think, I, I think yeah, you, were you just departing maybe when I was arriving, I ah, think. right, okay. Um, so, yeah, you, you know, you, you understand that, you know, Whips will seek to have conversations with people around, you know, why things do or don't work and so on. But ultimately on an issue of such national importance, people will arrive at different conclusions. But can I ask, when it comes to abstention, when the party's line is don't bother voting, are they actually going to be on the phone to you saying don't go near that voting lobby or is this more of a guide? No, no. If the whip is to abstain, that the whip is the whip. Right, and okay. it, it's it's the same thing. It's always there's massively... Not, there's com- operation in the same way, is there, to not vote? Yeah. It's always massively confusing with Lord's Amendments, though, because you're voting sometimes the opposite way to the yeah. logic, so the, the motion, way logic would dictate. So the motion yeah. will be, the government will put a motion to disagree with the Lord's <laughs> Amendment. So we will vote no in favour of the Lord's Amendment. Right, Everybody with me? It's basically because the government are negati- negativing the Lord's yeah, Amendment, yeah. inventing a new verb there. Excellent. <laughs> and we will double negative yeah. that. So wow. are you with me, Connor? You're, yeah, looking, just, I, I you're just, looking foxed, I, if I, I'm I, honest, I mate. I play HQ on my phone and I click the wrong thing on that all the time. So What's I'm not HQ? Sure. Oh, it's, a, it's a quiz game and you can win money. You play it on your phone. But I'm always putting the wrong answer on that. Um, do you, so I don't, you, I don't think I'd have any chance. So that's well, but this. this is... You have to walk through a door, Connor, so it's harder to make <laughs> the mistake is, this time. But this is why you have whips. I think this is like the thing that people most miss about the whipping system. I think there's often this discussion about the dark arts of whipping. And I would say it's less dark arts, more childcare arrangements. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like your main job is like basic instructions, not because MPs like can't work it out for themselves because given enough time to read the order paper and just did be fine. It's, it's just making sure that everybody understands literally what's going to happen. and so what you the rugrats that get away from the childminder all the time. Is that the analogy that you are? No, no, 50 no, rebels? no, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean, child, <laughs> I meant more, you know, you'd get a call from a colleague and, and you'd say, you know, we need you here for four o'clock. It's a very important vote. And they would say, that will be fine. But my childcare, uh, you know, my, my childminder's just wrong and sick. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's oh, like the, oh, the right. practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see, right? They're not doing right. Fine. So but it would be more like like finding. And I was aware of not having to strong argue. They're just having to help, enable just you help, to just help. Just help. Mean, you know, I used to be having to say to people like, "Look, I know you don't want to be here, and I know you want to be doing this very important campaigning event in your constituency, but I've got X, Y, Z MP who's about to give birth, and therefore we haven't got enough." paired slots where you'd be paired with a Tory for you to be away as well and it's literally negotiating between people's very real lives and that's what you do as a whip there's not a lot of you know taking people to a dark corner and facing them down <laughs> if I'm honest and in, in, on the kind of talk of about about whipping though obviously there's lots of talk about the Tory rebels the kind of pro-European rebels in the Tory party and um, are you expecting many from conversations that you've been having? And, and do you think there'd be more if Labour were whipping in favour? Because a lot of backbenchers will go, well, what's the point of rebelling on a vote that isn't going to pass? I haven't been involved in those conversations. So I really <laughs> don't know the answer to that. I mean, my, yeah. And, and my motivation is what's in the best interest of the people that have sent me here. So yes, of course, you there's a process of managing numbers and mm. so forth. But it's just about for me, all of these votes this week are about making sure that the people that I represent don't end up poorer, uh, don't lose their jobs and don't end up unable to put food on the table for their kids because we make a set of choices here that, you know, make that far more likely. I think Bridget puts it very well. I think what the Lords have demonstrated is that there's probably an anti-hard Brexit coalition in Parliament and the Labour Party's front bench position therefore matters greatly because you know, that will have a big influence on that. 
Um, obviously, what happens next after this is that once we've agreed with or disagreed with all mm. of the Lords Amendments, it goes back to the House of Lords. And this is where we get into ping pong, where they will then look at what we've done to the bill and amend it and then send it back to us. And then we'll then look what they've done, you know, agree or disagree and send it back to them. And so this is the first go round of this. There could be two or three more rounds. And we've got the the customs and trade bills, haven't we, as well, So which present very similar issues. So this is the start of what will continue until we get, I guess, to a bit more of a sense of what's going on, hopefully. Yeah, it does seem to me... And an immigration bill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That'll be interesting. It does seem to me that, that because this has come from the Lords... It does seem to be one that the Tory seem the Tory rebels are more likely to jump on than a front than an opposition front bench named amendment. Yeah, I mean that's right. There's the principles of this and what kind of Britain you want to live in, which will be a big, you know, issue for a lot of people in Parliament. But yeah, that's right. There's also about a sense of consensus. And I think one of the roles that the House of Lords plays is because of the presence of the cross benches they can more successfully try and broker a compromise because there's a lot of people in there who don't have a party affiliation. Whether or not you agree with our system, our current system of of getting the House of Lords, that is a function of the current system of House of Lords. So I think... But also when we were in government, when people were rebelling, they were more likely to do it on a Lib Dem amendment or a House of Lords amendment than they were going to do it on a Michael Howard front bench amendment, weren't they? Because they didn't want the victory to be... They might have thought the government were wrong, but they didn't want to gift the victory to the opposition front bench and their main opponents they were they wanted to do it in a yeah, way yeah i would think i would think that was i would think and that the same would be likely. true the other way yeah. with the tories and i think whether you're labor or tory you feel rightly a real sense of um loyalty to your own party because of the values because of um your commitment that all you've given all you've given in that time to your party demonstrating any divergence from that is just really very difficult for people whether you, you know regardless of party but brexit and the issues that it presents are are ones that I think cut across party and are about the kind of, as Alison said, the kind of Britain we want to live in and, you know, the the next 20, 30 years, you know. Yeah. It's, it's about isolationism or internationalism. And that, you know, I would disagree with Tory MPs over just almost everything, but there's this one chink of a sense that our country should be you know outward looking and involved in the world that we do agree on and for those of us that come from constituencies where many people voted to leave although I don't think it's helpful to paint things in terms of leave and remain constituencies of course you take into consideration what your voters uh, believe and what they want but equally I know that people in my constituency return to me as a Labour MP and I don't think my duty as a Labour MP is best served by just nodding along to whatever Boris Johnson or David Davis or Theresa May says um, is in the best interest of this country. Um, on any other area of policy, we would, you know, we, we are right to push the Tories, whether it's the NHS and what they're doing to tackle child poverty. We should be, you know, it's right that we give the same degree of scrutiny to the, some of the biggest decisions that our country will take for a generation. David Lillington, the uh, cabinet, uh, the minister for the cabinet office, who's uh, seemingly the kind of de facto deputy prime minister now, he wrote a really interesting piece in the Telegraph on Monday, which was interesting just because how revealing it was. Uh, he said that um, these amendments seek to preempt policy um, decisions, which would be uh, rightly be taken at a later date. Um, this seems to just be a suggestion that. The government doesn't have any policy positions on this stuff yet, and we don't want to have them yet. And Bridget, it seems to be very similar to what you heard when you were in Washington, D.C. earlier. People go, 
we can't start trade negotiations until we know what you want and they haven't made their mind up. And, and I think that's exactly the same as the response coming out of Brussels. And frankly, we've been through this before. This is how David Cameron went into negotiations pre-Brexit. He didn't have any, he didn't really explain what he wanted to get out of it and then came out of negotiations at the end going, I got exactly what I wanted and no one believed him. Are we just running into exactly the same problem? Well, it's just managing the internal politics of the Tory party, which is not what any right. of us, which is certainly not what I was sent here to do. This is about making sure that people in communities like Sunderland um, have got good, well-paid jobs and hope for the future. And, you know, again, it's just for me, uh, you know, making sure that we have effective scrutiny that makes sure that, you know, these very difficult decisions are in the best interest of the country. And of course, we had a prime minister who cut a significant period of time out of that negotiation process by calling a general election that she didn't need. Um, and then all the chaos that followed afterwards, you know, the clock is ticking. And, you know, if David Liddington is writing at this point, well, you know, we're still kind of working out what we're doing, it doesn't give you a great deal of confidence that whatever is going to come back in the autumn is going to be something that will rise to the scale of the challenge that we face. You know, on the big issues like how you handle the principle of free movement of recognising that immigration has not been handled well in Britain over the past uh, decade or so, you know, it's already overdue. You know, we already don't really know. Never mind the Labour Party for a second. We don't really know what the Tories want because Theresa May has sort of hinted at the idea that she understands that there's costs if we, you know, move too far away from the from the principle of free movement but she hasn't really said what kind of level of cost she's prepared to tolerate and nor has she said you know if you, she's walking into negotiation with those in brussels like what she's got to say to them about that that balance um of uh, of the things that you get out of it and the benefits compared to you know the things that you have to sign up to she just hasn't really given any indication about what she thinks about that dilemma and that's that's okay if you're like a backbench MP just thinking these things through and trying to work out what your constituents want. If you're the prime minister leading the negotiations, you know, we are behind the curve. As many of the underlying drivers of Brexit are left totally ignored. Exactly. Um, you know, right, we're right to focus on what's going on here. These are really important decisions. But I thought Pat McFadden wrote an excellent piece um, a couple of days ago talking about the fact that in communities where there hasn't been the full, you know, the full benefits of um, kind of economic change haven't always worked where people are still feeling that, you know, they're feeling angry and disenfranchised and rightly so. What are we going to say to those people, not just in the Labour Party, but as a country, while we spend all this time focusing on our future relationship with Europe, how are we sorting out issues around jobs and productivity in the world of work? How are we making sure we can fund social care in the future? What about our young people? All of this just falls by the wayside as the Tories have their internal machinations on Brexit and that I don't think that does anybody any favours. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about these other votes that will be coming up which are related uh, over the next few months. Um, can you just explain quickly how this week's votes differ from those? What 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 kind of... Do you mean the, uh, the customs and yeah, trade Yeah, the customs and, and the immigration. And... So the government needs to legislate for a whole host of things in preparation for Brexit. There's this word, aki which is, um, it, it's like, I think it's Latin for, uh, and it, bas- it basically means the acquired law. So it's basically all of the EU law that will have, that has an impact. So for example, let me explain in the context of something realistic. I know well, in the world of financial services, how you function as a bank 
a lot of that law is at the European level. And all of those rules and regulations need to be written into British law. So there's a massive parliamentary effort required to get the acquis over into British law. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. <laughs> We're with you. You're with me so far. <laughs> so um, as part of that, so we haven't, you know, needed to have our own law on um, on stuff to do with immigration and trade because we've been part of the European Union. So we now need to write our own law. Some some of it is not so, um, it's, it's not just rules and regulations that need to be on the statute books here. Some of it is more policy choices. And this is why um, the government have said that they'll bring forward this, this suite of bills on customs and trade and immigration and all of the rest of it. The problem is that those involve quite substantial policy choices. And whilst you're the Tory cabinet and you've got internal de- debate within, in the cabinet about what you should think on those issues, it's quite hard to bring forward a bill into the House of Commons that, that gives a policy framework does that make sense? So in the case of immigration, you know, you could just say that we'll the non-EU immigration um, policy will become the immigration policy for EU nationals. But I mean, that would send quite a poor message to the European Union, in my view, um, not to go into the detail of it all, like that would set us apart from current practice in quite a way so it these bills involve significant policy might have consequences for british citizens living in spain or greece or cause absolutely and again does nothing to address some of those underlying concerns about why people feel that immigration is a cause for concern so i don't have a great deal of faith that the tories are going to bring forward big proposals around investment in northern transport infrastructure for example or that we're going to see you know massive efforts to tackle child poverty and you know making sure that we can support small businesses in places like the northeast that is part of the debate about immigration as much as the rules that will govern us afterwards exactly all of those things or that they would bring forward a bill that would enable a trade union to go and root out some of the exploitative practices you know in in businesses you know that 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 you know high street firms that we're all aware of that treat people in an absolutely shocking way and where you get you know kind of depot managers who say well if you don't like the way I treat you you know I'll get a Romanian in next week like that's a cause of people feeling deeply dissatisfied about immigration and it could be dealt with by robust prosecution of the existing law on on the minimum wage and also ensuring that trade unions can organize in places like that so the Tories are never going to do that. So we'll always have this immigration issue until they do. I've got one uh, final question before we wrap up. Bridget, I know you said that you don't make political predictions anymore. So Richard, I might come to you on this one if that's all right. But it feels like after the David Davis and Boris Johnson grandstanding last week and the level of splits currently in the Conservative Party, if the government had suffered a big defeat this week in Parliament, it really felt like it could have been Theresa May's last in Downing Street. Do you think... Do you think we're missing an opportunity this week? I think we're missing a massive opportunity because if we want an early general election, which the leadership seem to be desperate for, and we're all obviously keen to end this Tory rule uh, if we can, this kind of defeat on her personally and her direction that she's taking Brexit, I think could have had that catastrophic uh, implication for her. But even if it wasn't going to lead to the fall of the government, it might have just been that there was a shuffling government, including where the Prime Minister is, because she's now you know, in the most precarious situation with her colleagues. And the negotiation she is still running is with her colleagues, not with our European friends. And so if that has come to a point in which 
she can't hold that coalition together, exposed by a parliamentary vote, I'm not sure what other option that she would have. Well, I think that's all we've got time for, but uh, certainly I think the parliamentary votes this week will be interesting nonetheless. Do stay with us because we've got the political pub quiz question next. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, and that's answered on the Friday Review Show. So we kind of spoke about this a couple of minutes ago, but Theresa May's government was not defeated in the House of Commons from when she took over as Prime Minister in 2016 until last year's election. Since that election, which removed May's majority, the government has been defeated 13 times in the Commons, most of them Opposition Day debates. Uh, Since the Second World War, what is the longest period without a government defeat in the House of Commons? Ooh, good question. Send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or you can tweet them to at progressonline. You can tweet them at Connor Pope as well. And uh, if you enter, you can win a Progress mug. We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Bridget Phillipson joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review, and we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.